lively crowd this morning for you, Dr. Arsenault. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, May 25th, 2016, the last Wednesday in May. It also is uh, iced coffee for Chad Day, so um, proceeds from each and every iced coffee sold at Dunkin' Donuts in New Hampshire and Vermont will return to ourselves or our friends at the University of Vermont Children's Hospital. So um, I think it's going to also be warm. Dean was saying it's going to be close to 90, so the weather's cooperating. Um, in terms of some good news also, last night I was at the Population Health Council, which is uh, a trustees, Dartmouth-Hitchcock trustees funded initiative, which is providing, um, well, it's close to $17 million in a fund currently that's been directed by the trustees for population health innovation. And among the initiatives that are gaining support include uh, um, dissemination, larger dissemination of the screening, brief intervention, or referral for treatment, the expert work that Steve Chapman and the team at GAP have piloted here in Lebanon. And so that's very exciting that we'll be expanding that across uh, the system and across the region, as well as um, what's called eConsult2, which will incorporate some pediatric eConsult work that is timely and, and appropriate that uh, Dr. Arsenault's topic is similarly about today. So today's Grand Round speaker is Dr. Christine Arsenault, who is a native of Linfield, Massachusetts, uh, completed her Bachelor of Science with a major in Neuroscience at Bates College and a medical degree at State University of New York at Buffalo before joining us here at Chad for residency in 2013. She uh, represents us uh, as our delegate to the American Academy of Pediatric Sections on Section of Medical Students, Residents, and Fellows and Trainees, although I think they're getting a new name soon, aren't they? Um, and I think um, has represented us well in that role. I think Christine is, is known maybe um, as being somewhat unassuming, um, but if you review her CV as I get to, her work is actually quite eclectic, and among her publications and theses include The Future of Herbal Medicine and Modernizing Ghana, uh, Evaluating the Dose and Voltage-Dependent Effects of NMDA Receptor Antagonist Huperzine A at Various NMD Receptor Subunits, um, some work on uh, presentations on a sleepy baby with a stuffy nose, adenovirus encephalopathy, vitamin D status and bone mineral density in pediatric patients with epilepsy, effects of anti-epileptic drugs, epileptic drugs and risk factors, and this work... Um, uh, which she is presenting today, which has been um, presented at PAS and will share more extensively with us. So, uh, Christine, thank you. Take it away. Director of Primary Care Initiatives and Workforce Policy Analysis. I think that's right. 
Um, and this is one of the recent publications that the AAMC put out that talks about um, modifications to healthcare systems around the country that help improve the way that primary care and specialty doctors provide care for their patients. This topic, so when Scott had the dinner at his house, he talked about a few different um, topics that he has worked with. But the reason that this topic in particular grabbed me is because I think we've all experienced in our outpatient um, settings frustrations with the interactions between primary and specialty care doctors. We all want to provide optimal care for our patients, and sometimes things get in the way of that. Um, all of the specialist physicians, I'm sure, have had patients arrive in their clinic with little to no paperwork, and the patient himself doesn't really understand why they're there for the visit. Um, all of the primary care providers, I'm sure, have had a situation where a patient returns from seeing a specialist, perhaps on a new medication, but the patient doesn't really understand what happened at the visit, and you don't have enough um, information to clarify that for yourself. I should say, I think we're a little bit better about this here within darkness, but when we interact with other physicians around the community, um, some of uh, we can face some of these challenges. And I should also, so this uh, project talks about some of these innovations, and um, another reason why I think this topic is particularly interesting is because a lot of the changes that have been made that can help the way that primary and specialty care doctors interact are very simple and almost make you smack your forehead that you were the one who thought of them. But um, implementing these changes can really make a huge difference in the way that we provide care for our patients. We heard Dr. Ladd talk about government's mission of providing the best care for the right patient at the right time. And part of providing this high value care is to make sure that when we co-manage patients, we do this um, as optimally as possible. First, uh, just a little outline of what I'm going to be talking about. I'll be talking about some of the challenges that primary and specialty care doctors face as they try to provide good shared management for their patients. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the project that I worked on with Scott over the past couple of years here at Dartmouth. And finally, some of the future directions that we can take. Some of these um, modifications are already in place, but others that perhaps we hope will be more widely implemented to improve the way that we provide care for our patients. The first challenge that I want to talk about that affects the way that specialty care is provided for our patients is um, the specialty care workforce in pediatrics. This is a map, as you can see. Uh, this is taken from the Dartmouth Atlas. How many of you have heard of this? I think a lot of people have heard of it, but perhaps like me sort of had a vague understanding of what it was, but um, not exactly sure. So the Dartmouth Atlas is a project that's been going on for about 20 years here at Dartmouth. And it started out using uh, Medicare data to look at geographic distributions of how physicians practice around the country. Um, and recently, this has expanded to include pediatric data. So this map in particular looks at the density of pediatric specialists per uh, patient population. So it's um, graded per capita, if you will. And the darker areas here show more pediatric specialists for patients, and the lighter areas show fewer specialists for patients. So 
you can imagine that um, over here in northern New England, there are far more pediatric specialists per patient than out here in um, Wyoming and Montana. And we don't really know um, how this affects the care that we provide for patients. The only sort of outcomes data that has been examined is related to the density of NICUs, and that analysis has shown that having more NICUs does not indicate better outcomes, um, and that only when the number of NICUs per capita is very low do you see increased morbidity. Um, but like I said, there's, there hasn't been much analysis about having more pediatric um, specialists in a certain area and how that would affect our outcomes. You can imagine that a patient who has poorly controlled asthma who lives over here in Massachusetts would have better access to a pediatric pulmonologist than one who lives over here five hours away from a pediatric pulmonologist, but we're not really sure how that would play out. An additional um, issue that's facing the pediatric specialist workforce is the fact that the number of children who are utilizing pediatric specialty services is increasing over the past 10 or so years. There are more complicated children in our community, more um, NICU graduates, etc. And the number of pediatricians going into specialty practice is not rising at the same rate. So, even, so we have more children who need specialty services and not as many specialists, not as many pediatricians going into specialty services to accommodate that population. <coughs> Additionally, Analysis of um, graduating pediatric specialty fellows has shown that these, these pediatricians tend to practice in areas where similar specialists already practice. So instead of, you know, sort of um, spreading out across the country, pediatric specialists tend to go to centers where there are already several pediatric specialists. And as a result of this, just increasing the number of specialists won't change the effects that we see here, which is that there are a paucity of specialists in some areas and perhaps an abundance in others. A second problem that, or challenge I should say, that um, we see in the care that we provide for our patients is fragmentation of care. Um, so the definition of this concept is, as defined by um, someone at the Harvard School of Public Health, is care decisions made by multiple different providers that would be better made by either a single provider or a unified decision-making process. And this blog post within the New York Times last week is written by an internal medicine physician, and she was lamenting the fact that when she sees her female patients, she thoroughly examines all part of them, but skips the reproductive system and sends that over to an OBGYN. Um, a similar example in pediatrics, or different, but an example in pediatrics could be a NICU graduate who sees GI, neurology, and cardiology at an um, academic medical center, but whose primary care physician is in the community and relies on technology from the 1980s to receive um, information about that patient. <laughs> Uh, have been shown to both increase morbidity and um, increase costs of the care that is provided for patients. Another um, problem or challenge that faces the our ability to, perfect, to provide um, good co-management 
for our pediatric patients is the concept of inefficient utilization of subspecialist resources. Um, data from looking at adult specialty medicine shows that 40% of patients who follow with specialists do so for follow-up care, so a problem that is already known to the specialist. And we might feel comfortable um, with this in, for, for example, in type 1 diabetes. I think most uh, providers feel comfortable with a specialist managing this as an ongoing problem. But another example could be a patient who had a VSC that was repaired at birth and is on no medications but continues to follow with the cardiologist. And the question that, you know, I want to ask is, is this really the best way to utilize that cardiologist's 45-minute visit? Or perhaps if that patient was able to transfer back to the management of the primary care doctor, could the cardiologist see a new patient who really requires his or her expertise? Just to review here some of the challenges that I talked about as we try to work together to provide specialty care for our patients are challenges both in geographic distribution and in numbers of the pediatric subspecialist workforce, the problem of fragmented care and how this affects our patients, and then finally, inefficient use of subspecialist resources. I want to talk more about that last challenge, the inefficient or suboptimal use of specialty care resources. I mentioned a patient with a VSD who's on no med or sorry, a VSD that was repaired on no medications who may not need to continue following with the cardiologist. What are so it but it's interesting to think about who these patients are. Um, how do we know which patients really medically require the ongoing follow-up of the specialists and which ones would be appropriate to transfer care back to the primary care doctor? So a group at the University of San Francisco looked at this target population in, in adult medicine. They surveyed specialist clinicians during a, um, during a busy clinic day, and following every patient visit, they asked, could this patient be managed by his primary care doctor, yes or no? And then they went to the primary care doctors who followed those patients and asked the same question, could this patient be managed exclusively by the primary care doctor? And this is what they found. So up here, sorry, this pointer is not very, um, but we, we have the um, primary care doctor responses, either yes, the patient could be managed by the PCP, or no, the patient is not appropriate to be managed exclusively by me. Um, and then over here are the specialist responses. So this, the specialist says, yes, this patient could be managed exclusively by the primary care doctor, or no, I really think this, this patient requires ongoing specialist management. Um, and then down here you can see this um, group of over a third of patients that both the primary care doctor and specialist agree really need ongoing specialist management. These patients are not quite appropriate for management by the PCP without some specialist expertise. But what's more interesting to me um, is this 16% here. So these are the patients who both the primary care doctor and the specialist agree could be managed by the primary care doctor exclusively without ongoing specialist follow-up. And yet, all of these patients 
the samples were taken from specialty clinics. So these patients were following with the specialist for some reason, um, even though both their PCP and the specialist agree that they don't need to for medical reasons. And the group concludes that when clinically appropriate, the transfer of patient care management from specialist to PCP could optimize the use of specialty care resources and increase specialty care capacity. Just to um, reiterate that, you know, freeing up that 45-minute visit with a cardiologist could help decrease the wait times for new patients to see that specialist physician. What are some of the barriers preventing patients from transferring back to management by their primary care doctors? The group at the University of San Francisco um, conducted interviews with primary care doctors and came up with some reasons that the primary care doctors thought might be preventing patients from transferring back to their care. Some of the things that they came up with were um, the primary care doctor's ability to manage a patient. So, of course, if the primary care doctor doesn't feel comfortable managing a certain condition, it would not be appropriate for the patient to be follow with them exclusively. But this is um, a factor that is extremely variable. So different primary care doctors feel comfortable managing different conditions. And even one primary care provider may vary in his or her um, comfort level depending on resources in his or her environment. So for example, um, a primary care provider who has a behavioral health therapist and a nutritionist in her clinic might feel very comfortable managing chronic constipation, whereas one who did not have this, these resources might not feel as comfortable. Um, another barrier that they came up with was patient preference. I think we've all had a situation where um, a parent won't be able to sleep at night until they get the specialist's stamp of approval that their child is gonna be okay. Um, other things they came up with, and I'll talk more about these in detail later, but were um, financial pressures, which is something that I think we all are aware of, and um, social norms or desire to avoid treading on someone else's territory. That was kind of an interesting one. So you can imagine if a specialist got a referral for a certain patient, they don't want to send them back before the primary care doctor feels comfortable and hurt anyone's feelings. So um, that was another barrier that they proposed. But what about pediatrics? So we all know that children are not just little adults, right? Um, this is obviously a satirical article uh, from the Goldberg blog, which is an online um, onion, basically, for medicine. But adult medicine and pediatric medicine are different. This study was looking at adult medicine, but the way that we practice pediatrics um, certainly is not the same as the way that adults practice their medicine. So, what are some differences, and I'm just going to open this up to the audience, but between the way that adult specialist um, providers practice and sort of the systems in which they practice and uh, pediatric specialist medicine? Does anyone have any thoughts or comments about that? <laughs> I'll tell you, the, the adult cardiologists see a much higher percentage of actual disease than the PDF. Because they'll refuse. They'll just right. flat out to refuse to see a lot of patients saying that is not a cardiology problem, that's a general internal medicine problem. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. Um, I think that 
you know, one of the things that I was going to say is I do think there's a different emotional attachment when, especially if a provider has seen a child since infancy, you know, the family gets attached in a different way, and whether we're all too nice or what it is, but that's, that is definitely a, a difference. Um, but we're also practicing with a family, not a patient. Yep, that's a good point. Yep, mm -hmm. certainly. We, we tend to, we have to, you know, I think adult providers also certainly try to work with the entire family, but we really have to because kids can't take care of themselves. Um, there are, just from a more um, numbers perspective, there are some more adult specialists, and certainly, than there are pediatric specialists. And they tend to be more evenly distributed. So that map that I showed earlier um, is not the same in, in adult medicine. There are private practices where adult specialists practice. They're not all clustered at academic centers. Um, those are some of the... Yep. Of course, we, we get a number of referrals from family practice groups <coughs> while they are comfortable with handling uh, immunizations and family kind of issues and being very good at that. They're much less comfortable with medical problems in kids. And so, the, you know, that's a big part of things we get that we probably don't get from pediatricians. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So maybe family practice physicians, if they have the more complicated medical child, that child may be their um, I don't have a great uh, way to compare, but at least in pediatrics, I feel like we are, we as providers are in general much more collaborative. Um, like in our continuity clinics, we can just run down the hallway and grab someone, even though they have a full clinic and they have procedures coming up, everyone's usually really nice about um, coming in and helping you out, or at least telling you if they need to see them. And I think that's helpful in the long run because it may save them 45 minutes in two months, if they can just say, oh, that murmur's totally fine, don't worry about it. Yeah, and that's an interesting point. I think so what Dr. Adlumuthi was saying is that um, that pediatricians may work together a little bit more, grab each other out of offices. I think that that is maybe unique also to this institution, where we are a small institution where we have physical proximity to our specialist providers. And I can't, there are definitely a number of times I've grabbed someone to listen to a murmur to use your example. Um, one more? I suspect there's a difference between adult and pediatric providers in um, feeling of where the responsibility lies. Yes. Right? When you care for adults, you sort of feel like you're an adult, you should be able to follow yep. up, follow through. Yep. Whereas pediatrics, you don't feel that about the patient necessarily. And sometimes you feel that you can put that responsibility on the parent, but not when they're switching between foster care. Or of course, yeah. So that's a really good point also. So our patients don't have the ability to really take care of themselves and as primary care providers, we often accept a good deal of that responsibility for our patients. Okay, so I'm just going to shift gears and talk about the um, research project that I worked on with Scott over the past couple of years. We wanted to look at this group of patients, the patients who follow the specialists but may be medically appropriate to transfer back to their primary care doctor in the pediatric population. So we wanted to see what portion of patients are appropriate for exclusive PCP management who continue to follow a specialist, and then what some of the barriers are to this transfer back to primary care. Just a bit about 
the methods, I um, got some feedback that it wouldn't work well to go into clinics and hand out surveys in between patients here. Um, so I reviewed the charts of um, specialist schedules in the electronic medical record, and I looked for patients who were redefined as stable, so they had to have no medication changes in at least one year, and they had to have one of the most common diagnoses for whatever specialty they were being seen in, based on uh, the literature of most common ICD-9 codes for a given specialty. So once I had found those patients, identified those patients, I created um, de-identified vignettes, just a little summary of the patient, their past medical history, medications, etc. And then I sent these out via SurveyMonkey to a lot of you guys, and I want to thank you for responding to my surveys. Um, and I asked the question, could the primary care provider manage this patient exclusively? I also sent the surveys to the primary care providers who follow these patients. Oh, okay. <laughs> so this is, um, I'm just going to do some clicker interaction now. Just some um, examples of some of the cases that I sent out via to um, all of the many of you um, this past fall. So this first case was someone who was being followed in the GI clinic. So this is a seven-year-old male with fecal incontinence. <clears throat> he was initially tried on daily glycoconal and then daily glycerin. Currently, the child is being managed with a glycerin suppository every three days, and he's able to wear underpants to school, so that's good. Um, his past medical history is significant for mild asthma and mild developmental delay, and additional meds include Flovet and albuterol. So, could this patient be managed exclusively by his primary care provider? And I had, in parentheses on the survey, imagine that the specialist has an opportunity to make a final sign-off visit with recommendations. So, yes or no? And no medication changes in the past year? No medication changes in the past year. There's some way to see how many people responded, but I don't know how to do that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Um, and remember, this patient was in the GI clinic, so um, that's how I found these cases. Um, so everyone agreed, yes. For this case, um, our GI provider team, and I should clarify that in many cases, there was more than one specialist who responded to the survey. And so the way that I was able, that I compared the primary care and the specialist responses is to take a consensus response. So if there were three GI providers and two said yes and one said no, then I said the teams did, said yes when I compared it to the primary care doctor. Um, but in this case, both the primary care doctor and the specialist agreed that this patient was appropriate for exclusive management by the PCP, just like you all did. So this is another case, also someone being followed at a GI clinic. So this is an 18-year-old female with cerebral palsy, trisomy 21, hypothyroidism, and a seizure disorder. She had a G-tube that was placed when she was an infant, and she still has intermittent leaking. She only uses it for medications. And these are her medications. Again, no medication changes in the past year. And then no nutritional medication. Okay. So, could this patient be exclusively managed by 
for Hunter and Jeff. I mean, GI problems. For the GI. For GI, yeah. This is just for GI. on why we said that, but I can tell you it's fixable. Because if the GI team took it upon themselves to take an area like this where they felt they could coach us as primary care to manage the tube, then I think this could shift. But it requires a really different frame of reference. Our GI specialists are much better than many around the country at trying to coach us to take over. Mm -hmm. But I think the key is really... Um, two-way education. Yeah, so Dr. Kinner is talking about sort of directed education, and that's something that I'll actually touch on later, but to, talk, to manage a specific problem um, that may not be extremely com complicated, but if, if one doesn't know how to do it, you know, one needs yeah. education, and if that education is provided, that could expand the scope of a primary care provider's mm -hmm. practice. Yeah. Just, just one small point that may come up in some later cases that it I think the big question is how much the specialist is actually involved mm -hmm. in, in managing that problem. And it might be something for which they see them every three months, and it might be every three years. And the difference there matters a lot. Yep, whether certainly. this is something, you know, is the, right. yeah, is so. the GI doc seeing this guy, this, this woman, every three months, or saying, I want to see you back in five years just to see where it's at? Yeah. It's a different way of handling it. I think the interesting thing for me in looking at this is not the results, but what the results mean. Why do half of the people feel it could be and half couldn't be managed? And I think that gets more at the heart of the issue than the actual outcome here. It's like the variation stuff that was found long ago. 2% of kids get tonsillectomies in Maine, and 20% get them in Texas. Mm -hmm. What's the cause for that? And that's the real essence, as I see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I should, we don't know why in this case, you know, I didn't specifically get information about why these two cases were answered differently, but all of these reasons might play in. Also the fact that this was a more complex patient. This patient had several medical problems, and that might have had something to do with why the primary care doctor felt that it wasn't really appropriate for um, or patient. Okay, so uh, these are my overall results. So in the end, there were 55 cases that met the criteria of being stable in 10 different specialties. And of these 55 cases, I was able to get input from at least one specialist and the primary care doctor in 85% of the cases. In 53% of these cases, at least one provider, either the specialist team or the primary care doctor, 
felt, or the primary care provider, excuse me, felt that the patient could be managed exclusively by the PCP. And in 36% of cases, the PCP and the specialist agreed that yes, this patient was appropriate for management by the primary care provider. I told you that I would come back to some of these barriers. Again, these are all um, derived from the paper, or the project conducted at the University of San Francisco, looking at reasons why adult patients don't follow with their specialists, or follow with their primary care providers. Um, but I used these as multiple choice answers in the surveys that I sent out, and encouraged everyone to select factors that they felt may be preventing a patient from transferring back to management by the primary care provider. So again, um, inability of the primary care provider to manage the patient, different clinical judgment among the PCP or specialist, the subspecialty clinic preference for longitudinal follow-up, desire to avoid treading on someone else's territory, patient preference, insufficient access to primary care, and financial pressures. And this is, um, these are the results of the surveys that the primary care providers and specialists filled out here. Um, so here you can see the specialist responses and the PCP responses. Some interesting things to point out. So this light blue column here represents the inability of the primary care provider to manage the patient or the primary care provider's scope of practice, what the PCP, PCP might feel comfortable managing. And as we mentioned before, this varies among primary care providers and could vary with one primary care provider depending on what resources he or she has access to. The green bars um, represent patient preference and that was selected very commonly as a factor preventing patients from transitioning back to management by their PCP. We mentioned before the patient who just won't feel comfortable, won't be able to sort of rest easy until they get that specialist stamp of approval. And as Dr. Berman pointed out, perhaps we're a little bit more um, willing to, um, to refer just for the comfort of a family than adult medicine providers may be. Um, it's interesting to note also that this is provider perception. So whether or not these patients actually feel this way would be an interesting thing to find out. We seem to think that they feel this way pretty often, but maybe that's just the way that we perceive their, um, their feelings. Other sort of interesting things. So this pink bar over here um, represents financial pressures, and it was worded financial pressures or incentives to generate RVUs. And interestingly, the primary care providers cited this as a reason in 11% of cases, but the specialists never cited this as a reason. Um, and I was talking about this with Dr. Duffkin and Dr. Stan Loud at PAS, and one thing that they hypothesized was if a specialist has a wait list that is several months long, it doesn't really matter whether or not another patient is added to that wait list, whereas if a primary care provider spends 45 minutes on a very complicated patient and could otherwise see three or four ear infections, seeing that complicated patient actually takes away from the primary care provider's um, 
are being used. So perhaps that has something to do with that, what we see there. I also thought it was interesting, the purple here is um, the option of desire to avoid treading on someone else's territory, and that was very infrequently selected, which I think might reflect our sort of what, as we were talking about earlier, at this medical center, it's a small medical center, everyone works very closely, actually physically proximal to one another, and so perhaps it's easier to get a sense of what someone else what someone else's territory is to, you know, to, so to speak. Christine, um, the blue bar, access, is it yeah. about lack of access or Sorry. availability? So I just made it shorter for, okay. this is what it really said in the survey, but just for the this graphic, I tried to make it a little bit shorter. So it said um, insufficient access to primary care. Yeah, so that's another interesting one. I'm not sure why um, so many people selected that as a reason. So just to recap, in our sample, 36% of stable patients who continue to follow a specialist could be managed exclusively by their PCP. And again, I'm not at all trying to say that this is 36% of the entire panel. Um, I, as I mentioned before, when I initially suggested trying to ask about every single patient, I was told that that might not be uh, welcome. So I think that might be interesting to look at, but we chose to look only at stable patients. Um, but it's still a pretty sizable percentage. And then patient preference and scope of primary care provider expertise are the biggest barriers preventing the transition from specialty to primary care. So I just wanted to talk for a minute about communication. This is an example of poor communication. Um, <laughs> communication is something that is obviously important to our everyday interactions as human beings. In relation to this uh, topic in particular, the analysis of um, referral processes at a large outpatient research network, not, not including our center, but um, showed that primary care providers in this network sent information to specialists when making referrals 50% of the time, and specialists sent information back 65% of the time. Again, I think that our, our um, numbers are better here, but just thinking that there are some places across the country where the communication is that poor is really interesting um, to sort of think about. And all of these barriers that we've mentioned can be modified or improved upon by improving communication. So um, the, we talked about how the primary care providers have varied um, conditions with which they feel comfortable. Communicating that explicitly to the specialist when making a referral can help break down that barrier. Um, just to say, you know, once this patient with ADHD is on a couple of medications and is doing okay for six months, I feel comfortable prescribing these medications could help reduce the, um, the barrier of primary care provider scope of practice. Additionally, patient preference could be improved, you know, could be overcome if, I should say, um, medically unnecessary visits to subspecialists due only to patient's preference could be reduced if we improve communication. One of the specialists surveyed uh, left this comment, which I thought really summarized that concept, and she said that 
Rarely parents will insist that their child needs subspecialty care, despite no medical indication. I find that if the pediatric specialist takes the time to explain the findings and reassure the parents that the PCD will refer back to the pediatric specialist if any new concerns appear, then the appropriate transfer back to the PCD can occur. So this specialist has recognized that patients and parents sometimes really insist upon specialist care when it's not medically necessary, and she has also recognized that improving communication can help reduce the frequency with which this occurs. We've talked a lot about the challenges that face the primary and specialty physicians as we seek to provide care for our patients, but what are some of the solutions? So how can we fix some of these problems? I told you that I would come back to uh, this paper. If anyone has a chance to read this, I really encourage you to. It seems long, but there's a lot of white space in the margins, so <laughs> it's really interesting. And like I said, many, so many of these innovations, yeah. <laughs> uh, so many of these modifications are not rocket science. You know, they're just they're simple changes that can really improve the way we provide care for our patients. Um, just a bit more about the content. So this this project looked at um, the University of New Mexico and Kaiser Permanente in Colorado and uh, Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And those three centers have made a lot of modifications to help improve the way that primary and specialty physicians interact. Um, so the first thing that I want to talk about is the e-consult. Keith mentioned this, and Scott even talked to us about this a couple of months ago. Whenever I think about the e-consult, I remember a patient that I saw intern year with Dr. Kim, actually, in Hemont Clinic. And um, this patient had a family med uh, primary care provider in Woodsville, New Hampshire. <clears throat> And on the child's routine <coughs> screening, CPC, at two years old, um, the provider noticed that the patient had um, a microcytic anemia or a low hemoglobin uh, with small red blood cells. And the most common cause of that in that age group is iron deficiency. So the provider tried giving iron supplements, but the repeat um, lab work showed that it was still the child still had a um, microcytic anemia. So at that point, the provider called Dr. Kim and said, um, here's what I've done, here's the story, I'm not sure where to go next. And Dr. Kim said, said um, okay, you know, it sounds like you've done the first initial steps, the next thing I would do is get a peripheral smear. So the primary care doctor got a peripheral smear, um, and on that lab, he saw evidence of um, schistocytes, or sort of tearing of red blood cells. Um, and so he called Dr. Kim back and said, this is what I found, and she said, okay, now send the patient to me. So the e-consult is a way to formalize the curbside consult, basically. Um, it, uh, the way it works is that a primary care provider sends a specific clinical question to the specialist, and the specialist has 48 to 72 hours to respond to that question, um, and the, the specialist also has the opportunity to say, this is way too complicated, just send the kid down to me, I don't really get it. Um, but answering that question provides documentation of the curbside, if you will, and also hopefully can um, provide a way for RVUs or some sort of compensation to be generated for that curbside consult. From a patient care standpoint, it really improves the value of that first visit with the specialist. And sometimes 
can prevent the need for that visit with a specialist at all if the question is um, a simple, I, I should have thought of an example, but a question that the specialist can answer and then the primary care provider is able to continue managing the patient, you just saved the patient um, a car trip, a day of missed work, and you saved the specialist provider a visit that may have not been very valuable. They can then be filled by someone else, I should say. A second innovation that is discussed in this project is um, the concept of embedded providers. So at the Mayo Clinic, they are using nurse practitioners trained in endocrinology and orthopedics. Um, and these providers are physically located within the state, the primary care clinic, um, which has some benefits. So the uh, primary care providers can get a sense of the general workflow of the specialists that are able to pull the specialist in to see a patient during or after a visit, which just makes accessibility, improves accessibility to care. Um, it also just eliminates the need for the, the patient to get in their car and drive to a separate office. What they found additionally um, that I think is interesting is that they're doing fewer labs and fewer tests using this model because the um, patients are already linked in to see their primary care providers, so the specialist doesn't feel like, oh geez, you know, this might be my only shot to do all these tests, I really need to make sure I maximize all of the evaluations they do with this visit, because they know that patient's going to come back in, in a month or two to see the primary care provider, and they can just pop in and assess the patient at that time. In our clinic, we have um, Susan Pullen, who's an embedded mental health care provider, and I hope a lot of us have had the opportunity to pull her in um, to a patient's room to communicate with a patient and do some counseling. Um, I know that I found that very helpful. Interestingly, the um, Mayo Clinic also has what they call reverse embedded providers. And I don't, I couldn't think of a situation in which this would really apply to pediatrics, but at their dialysis clinics, they have PCPs who can see the patients because they know that they'll be, everyone knows they have to come to their dialysis. So the PCP gives the um, PCP an opportunity to make sure that they can see the patients. Another concept that helps improve the way that uh, primary and specialty care providers work together is pre-referral guidelines. So these are guidelines devised by specialist physicians to help guide primary care providers prior to the first visit to the specialist. So um, in, an example could be a patient with proteinuria before sending them to a nephrologist, the primary care provider should make sure to get a first morning urinalysis. So these guidelines help, and I'm just maybe gonna try to go a little bit quick because I'm gonna see the time, but these guidelines help reduce the number of um, perhaps medically unnecessary referrals, and also help make sure that by the time the patient gets to the specialist office, a little bit of workup has been done already, and that first visit can be spent on with more valuable um, care. This is what um, Dr. Kennedy was talking about, so targeted um, continuing education. Um, the University of New Mexico has this specific project, ECHO, looking because they, they noticed that um, a lot of the members of their community had hepatitis C, and there weren't enough GI doctors to manage all of the patients with hepatitis C. So instead of trying to, you know, 
have these long wait lists and patients are not getting um, good access to the GI specialists, they conducted, um, they implemented really specific medical education towards hepatitis C for the primary care providers. So that now the primary care providers have a specific and very specialized skill set that can enable them to provide better care for their patients. I think a good uh, way this could be applied in pediatrics is perhaps in behavioral health management or also dermatology. I know that down to Boston Children's, they have primary care providers who are trained um, in dermatology to just um, be more specialized and help manage some of the dermatologic conditions that it would take a long time to get into a specialist to manage. Um, this, so the collaborative care agreement, um, this is something that is, that was devised by a group um, in Boston, and it's a specific model for referral processes, and it's a three-part model that they assert all referrals should follow. So the, the first part of this model is the pre-referral exchange of information. So the primary care provider and the specialist communicate in some way prior to the initiation of a referral. Some of this you know, might be the pre-referral guidelines or the e-consult. I was talking with Dr. Shepkin about um, referrals in general, and she said that it used to be that when a primary care doctor wanted a referral, he or she had to write a letter to the specialist requesting that referral and with a brief assessment of the patient. Now, it's a lot easier, but we just have one box in our electronic medical record that says reason for a referral, and you write cough, and you click send. Um, and in theory, the specialist could go through and review the patient's chart, but we all know that when we're reading a note, we look at the assessment. You know, that provider-to-provider -provider communication is far more valuable than, uh, in a, you know, just going through the whole chart and trying to figure out what's going on. So having that pre-referral exchange, then the second part is the consult itself, which, you know, is just a physical visit to the specialist. And then the third part of this collaborative care agreement, which they argue is the most important, is the guidelines for ongoing management. So having the primary care doctor and the specialist explicitly state what the, what, who, who's responsible for what as we go forward. So who's going to order the tests? Who's going to refill the medications? Um, and then at what point does the primary care provider feel comfortable taking full responsibility once again? So having really explicit communication and um, drawing out sort of a plan for that helps reduce repeated tests and also can help um, prevent things from falling through the cracks. And then finally, telemedicine. Ors talked a lot about some of the really neat medical devices that are being um, implemented in our daily practice. Telemedicine can also really help the way that primary and specialty care providers act together to care for a patient. Um, virtual consults are sort of the Skyping, FaceTime type of telemedicine. I think we can all imagine how that would help provide better access to specialty care by reducing the travel time. And also, this can help um, reduce fragmentation of care. If you imagine having a virtual consult with a specialist during a primary care visit, the primary care physician will certainly be looped into that, um, to that communication, and that can help improve care. Additionally, some of the medical devices that sense patient vital signs or um, sense 
um, glucose readings, other sort of patient data can help make it easier for everyone to work together and provide care for the patients. In conclusion, there are numerous challenges that face primary care and specialty care providers as they try to work together to provide optimal care for their patients. One challenge that I've looked at a little bit over the past couple of years is the concept of inefficiently utilized subspecialty care. It is my hope that going forward, many of the innovations that I've talked about today, some of which, like pre-referral guidelines or the e-consult, are already in practice here, can help improve the way that we provide care for our patients. Um, and I just want to say thank you to um, Dr. Shepkin, Dr. House, and my husband Matt for listening to this talk a couple of times, and for Stefan for all of his help with the <laughs> Thanks, Christine, for this awesome presentation and about a really, really complex topic. Um, and um, I think that so um, I, as you know, being in primary care, like I've had such great success with the in-person conversations or phone conversations or whatever, and transitioning kids back to primary care from like you know the patient doesn't want to, but we work together to make it happen, and all these different things. And I think that the things that you highlighted about um, sort of. Um, it, additional education for primary care is really important. So I want to say one thing to all the specialists out there. Um, we do, in GAP, we do case conference um, for um, us, our own continuing education. And if anyone is interested in coming and um, talking about some of the things you wish that you saw less or that we would manage more, um, please let me know so we can set that up. And then my question for you is um, you've done you know, you've been in our system and learned all these different things and experienced these things and done this research. What do you think is the one thing that we, um, I mean, like e-consults are sort of happening, but is there a one thing you sort of wish we would do or wish people would pay more attention to or focus on? Um, I guess the more times that I've seen problems is with providers outside of our system. So, I guess if there were some, I think improving ways that um, the primary care physicians in the community are able to gain access to our medical records, I think would be a big one. And I didn't really talk about anything that can do that, but um, one thing that I didn't mention, another innovation that is discussed in that project is um, they have at, I think it's the Mayo Clinic, primary care liaisons. So they dedicate uh, a portion of an RVU to one of the primary care providers in the, in the practice to communicate specifically with um, a specialist department. And I don't, I'm just kind of thinking, I don't know if that could be applied to community physicians, but I think that would be the biggest thing that I could, that I think like as a care management kind of role? So um, the way that they have set it up, the primary care physician um, goes and meets with the special, so like Dr. Lam might be the one for orthopedics because he's sports medicine, he's tied into that, and he would go and meet with the orthopedics team and find out what some of their frustrations are, oh, the problems they're having, like a and then, yeah, and then come back. Um, 
The first two specialties, gold date for go live is October. PCP calls, got a lot of outside PCP emails. Mm -hmm. So the e-consult thing, I think that's like, that's going to be a godsend. Yeah. So how are the outside PCPs learning about this e-consult process? Or is it right now we just doing it with the PCPs in-house first? How are we going to educate them that this actually exists and that they can utilize it? That's a good question. <laughs> I know the short answer is it's not available outside the right. yeah, yeah, the 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 logistical challenges of um, making it work as fluently within the clinical workflow for external providers is a much bigger lift, and so it's more of a phase two to move to that. Everyone on the adult side and the feed side is interested in that for obvious reasons, um, to improve communication and efficiency of the patients who actually show up at your front door. Um, uh, but our logic is get it right internally first. There's definitely a learning curve for PCPs and specialists alike to what the writing consult questions are, how to answer them effectively. So work out the kinks internally first while we work on the logistical barriers to um, broaden it. So that's going to be something at EDH that we can order then? They can just say e-consult? Internally, yes. Internally. Yeah. I think last question. Eric will be coming here on September 20th for our pediatric health staff to go over uh, e-consults and referral to go live October 1. And so he's trying to do a collaboration with different sites around the state to review the e-consults e in terms of uh, making sure that everyone agrees to the content of them right now. So I just want to mention that. The other thing is Julie Balban does have an integrated thing where she meets with providers once a month and to coach us in, because of such a lack of access to child psychiatry in management of psychiatric medications. I found it very helpful and Kim's group is hopefully going to do the same thing as we go forward and have more specialists doing that to help coach us. So, um, so Dr. Asmos is, is going far. She will be in the region with the hospitalist, the pediatric hospital at the Concord Hospital, and, and maybe even with some ships still here with us at Chad. But um, despite the fact that she's not going far, we still want to share feedback. And so you'll get an e either the QR code outside or at the ends of the road. You can uh, load up the survey monkey right away, or you can email us subsequently. Uh, to hear more feedback on this wonderful presentation. So.